Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Well, good morning, City of Refuge. So my name is Brandon Freemian, and uh, I am the pastor-designate here at the church. It's a new term I heard this week, so I'm going to go with it. Um, So we're continuing today in our Servant King series. So last week we took a little bit of a detour. Uh, We were going to talk about Mark 10, but instead ended up talking about this idea of joy being found in the presence of God. Uh, I did talk with the preaching team this week, and we are going to return to Mark 10. So I think at the end of the series, we're going to have a little Mark 10 addendum where we're going to talk about two of the stories out of that that we think are particularly important. Uh, But today we're in Mark 11. And Mark 11 marks a significant shift in the tone and the story of Jesus. Up to this point, Jesus has primarily been up near the Sea of Galilee, kind of northern part of Israel. And his ministry has really been focused on these three things of preaching, teaching, and healing, along with training up his disciples. And in the meantime, Mark has been, through these stories, building a case for who Jesus is. These stories about his authority, his power, that he's king, and ultimately that he's God. We've seen that in the healing miracles. We've seen it in Jesus calming the storm and the disciples saying, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? We've seen it a couple weeks ago in the transfiguration where a couple of the disciples get a greater picture of Jesus' glory, where Jesus is transfigured before them, and they get this picture of who Jesus really is. In Mark 11, we're going to see Jesus entering Jerusalem. And the rest of the Gospel of Mark is going to take place in and around Jerusalem. And it's going to have a very different tone. Much of what we're going to see in terms of Jesus' teaching and his preaching is going to be in response to conflict with the religious leaders of his day or trying to give his disciples a a correct understanding of what they're seeing in Jerusalem. And we're going to see no healing miracles. That's striking to me. What has been characteristic of Jesus' ministry up to this point, Mark 10, in the healing of blind Bartimaeus, is the last healing miracle. There is none of them recorded in Mark that takes place in and around Jerusalem. And so we are going to enter today into this new season of Jesus' ministry with the triumphal entry. I'd like to read verses 1 through 25 this morning. So we're going to start, if you have your Bibles, in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it 
And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out to the city. As they passed in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, two somewhat strange stories. One, you have Jesus, the king, entering on a cult. And then there's this strange story of Jesus cursing a fig tree. So, it opens with Jesus giving his disciples a command to go into the city and to find a cult that evidently did not belong to them and to just untie it. And by his authority, evidently, they let them do this. They let him bring a colt out for Jesus to ride in on. Now, what's not immediately obvious is that Jesus is doing something very intentional with the way he is entering Jerusalem. Because there's a prophecy back in Zechariah 9.9 that said this. It said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion." Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So in entering the way he is, Jesus is fulfilling the Zechariah prophecy and making a very particular declaration. He's saying, one, I am the person Zechariah was talking about. Two, I'm the king, I'm coming to bring salvation. And three, I'm coming to you humbly. 
So he is absolutely making a declaration of kingship here. He is riding in just like it said in Zechariah, and the people notice that, right? You hear what they say. They're saying, Hosanna. They're laying out all of their garments and laying out the, the, the branches of leaves to sort of make this highway for him to come in, finding ways to celebrate him like he is a king, riding in, and they're, they're, they're praising him and worshiping and even talking about that blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Those who are there, they get it. They understand exactly what Jesus is doing and they're celebrating it. But Jesus is saying something specific about the type of king that he is. I don't know, have you ever seen someone riding on a really small horse or on a donkey where maybe it's not even tall enough that your feet are up off the ground? Like, this is not a heroic, dignified way to enter a city, right? This is not the way that most kings would enter a city, right? Kings are going to come on horseback or in chariot. They're going to look, they're going to look strong. They're going to look courageous. They're going to look like they mean business. And here Jesus is riding in humbly on a donkey. Yes, to save, but maybe not in the ways that people are expecting, right? Probably many in Jesus' day were expecting this king who was going to come in and throw over the Romans, which that's what you would expect from a king on horseback. But here we have a king riding humbly on a donkey. And in some ways, the story of the triumphal entry here in Mark ends kind of anticlimactically. It says he comes in, he goes to the temple, and it's late, so he basically turns around and goes back to Bethany. That's the end of the triumphal entry. No overthrow of Rome, no amazing deeds taking place, at least not yet. But the next day, Jesus goes back to the temple, and we have this Again, very remarkable story, something that we have never seen Jesus do, where he goes into the temple and he begins throwing out the money changers. He begins overthrowing the the tables and and kicking out the people that are selling the, the pigeons there for sacrifice. Honestly, something that is probably more violent than we would expect from Jesus. There's actually recorded one of the Gospels that Jesus sat and made a whip to drive people out. Now, I think it's important to note, this is not some spontaneous fit of rage by Jesus, right? Because we know he saw it the day before. He went in, he looked around the temple. This is a premeditated act of Jesus cleansing and cleaning out the temple. So let's talk about a little bit about why Jesus needed to do that. What is going on here? So what was happening, this was... Passover that they're coming in for. So there would have been people coming to the Feast of Passover from all over the world. Jews, Gentiles coming in for this feast. And as a part of the feast, there would have been sacrifices. People would have been coming in and as a part of their worship, making sacrifices. And if you were traveling from far away, you didn't bring your sacrifices with you. You would have to buy it there. So imagine people coming from all over. There's all sorts of different currency, different coinage coming in that they need to be able to make these purchases. And so you have money changers there, people that would help 
change your money so that you would have the currency you need to buy your sacrifices from the people who are selling the pigeons or whatever it was that you needed for sacrifices. So these vendors are providing essential services, right? They are providing what people need in order to be able to participate in the worship of the temple. So what's the problem? Well, there's two things. It's not the what they're doing that's the problem. It's the how and the where. Now, the how, we don't get a lot of details, but Jesus does call them a den of robbers. So we don't exactly know what they were up to, but evidently there were some practices there that were taking advantage of the people that were there for Passover. So basically, people who have to take advantage of these services were being taken advantage of. The bigger issue, though, is the where. Which is the problem was these things were being set up inside the temple. Most commentators believe that these money changers and these vendors had set up shop in the temple in what is called the court of the Gentiles. So there were different courts, and on the very outer part of the temple was the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were not allowed into a majority of the temple, but there was one court where they could go and pray and worship. And this is where these vendors had set up shop. Now, this gets to the very heart of what the temple was supposed to be about. So back in 1 Kings 8, we have the story of when Solomon first dedicates the temple. And he, in his prayer, casts a vision for what the temple is supposed to be. And the central thing that he talks about is that the temple was supposed to be a place of prayer. And in fact, he goes through a list of all of these different things that people were supposed to pray for. So, for instance, he talks about if they were defeated before their enemies, they were supposed to pray. If there was famine, they were supposed to pray. If there was lack of rain, they were supposed to pray. If they were, had sinned and were in need of forgiveness, they were supposed to pray. All of these things that had been laid out, that this is what the temple was supposed to be for. But there's one in particular that I wanted to read for you because it's relevant for what's happening here. This is out of 1 Kings 8, starting in verse 41. It says this. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the people of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name." So way back in 1 Kings 8, Solomon prayed that people would come from other nations, having heard about the works of God, and they would come to this temple and they would pray. And that he, Solomon asked that God would hear them and answer their prayer so that it would be confirmed to them that, yes, this God is the true God, this God is powerful, and God's name would be known through the earth through this. So there was a, a sense in which the temple was this part of God's calling for how Israel was supposed to demonstrate God's glory and his name to the nations. And now here, in Mark 11, the place where the nations would be coming to pray, the place where, according to 1 Kings 8, this is where they're supposed to come because they've heard the name of God and they have prayed and they're going to meet with God and see his glory. 
and they're in the middle of a storm. So imagine what it was like for those Gentiles coming into this. To get just a flavor of it, imagine for a second that you go to the mall and stand in the middle of the food court and try and have a prayer meeting. Now you can do it. I'm sure you can do it. But how conducive is that to really meeting with God, to be able to focus on him, to be able to concentrate, to be able to hear from him? Like that is the atmosphere that was being created for the Gentiles who were coming to seek God at Passover. It was a trampling on the declaration of the glory and the name of God to the nations. And it seems that the religious leaders were not bothered by it. In fact, when Jesus comes and he clears out the temple, they want to destroy him because they are afraid of the influence he's having on the people. So, although there is this cleansing that Jesus does of the temple, there is a deeper root, there is a deeper problem here than just this one issue. But I think this helps understand why it is that Jesus was a bit upset with what he saw when he went to the temple because he saw the declaration of the glory of God being trampled on for the sake of money. Now, on either side of the story of Jesus going to the temple, we have this somewhat bizarre interaction that Jesus has with a fig tree. So on his way in to clean out the temple, he sees a fig tree, and it says it's not the season for figs, but he goes to it because he's hungry, and there's no figs there. And so he curses the tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Then he goes and they, he cleans out the temple. And now they're coming back, leaving Jerusalem. And they walk by that fig tree again. And it says that it has withered down to the root. Now this seems strange because it honestly seems a little bit vindictive to this poor fig tree. Right? Like... It wasn't even the season for figs. Come on. But I think here Jesus is making an object lesson for something important that he's wanting to teach his disciples. Again, I don't think it is an accident that the cleansing of the temple is sandwiched between these two things. Because I think that fig tree is representing something about the temple. Right? Jesus goes by the fig tree and it's not producing the fruit that it's supposed to produce. He goes to the temple, it's not producing the fruit it's supposed to produce. It is not being the temple of prayer. It is not being the house of prayer for all of the nations that it is supposed to be. So I think there is something symbolically that Jesus is doing to the fig tree that is representative of what's happening at the temple. The time of the Old Testament temple, the time where that is going to be the center of prayer for God's people is passing away. It is no longer bearing fruit. And so it's striking then, what does Jesus teach his disciples in response to them seeing this withered fig tree? He teaches them about prayer. He says, Have faith in God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. There is a transfer, a transition that is happening here of Jesus moving his disciples away from the temple as being the center place of prayer to following him and him being the center of their prayer. But notice that there is a calling here that harkens back to the Old Testament that God's people were supposed to be a people of prayer, and that is not changing with Jesus. Jesus is now calling his disciples to be a people of prayer. And he teaches them something about prayer, and he, pray, he teaches them first that they are supposed to pray with faith. And with, honestly, tremendous faith. He uses the example that they should have faith that if they tell a mountain to get up and go into the ocean, that it's going to do that. Right? There is a, a level of faith that he is calling them to that is both radical, and I'll be honest for myself, even makes me a little uncomfortable. And I think part of the reason that makes it uncomfortable is because this is something that we have seen abused. And so I think it's important to talk about that a little bit in terms of understanding when Jesus is teaching them to pray in faith, what does he mean by that? Because there is today a name it and claim it kind of theology that is very prevalent, that tends to have as its end this idea that if I need wealth or a new car or a new job or to be successful, I just need to name that, pray it in faith, and then it's going to happen to me, right? Where we almost are treating God like a genie, right? It looks less like the God of the New Testament and more like, you know, the guy from Aladdin. You've never had a friend like me, right? But to quote the venerable Shai Lin, if you come to God for money... He's not your God, money is. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray in faith and to have a prayer-filled life in the context of following him and in the context of everything that he has been teaching them, which includes things like the priority of doing the will of God and the call to lay down one's life on behalf of others, to honor others above ourselves, the, the call to the spiritual dangers of material wealth that we see in Mark 10, along with all the other things that he has demonstrated to them about what it means to be his followers. That is the context in which he teaches them they are to pray in faith. It is in the constellation of these larger teachings that he has. So just viewed in isolation, you could see how this could be used for just, well, this is how I'm going to help myself to what I, what I want in life. No, this is about praying in faith for the things that we need as we follow Jesus. Nor do I think that Jesus' teaching here somehow overrules God's sovereignty, as if Jesus here is giving us permission to just order God around whenever we feel like it. Right? Our prayer life is in response to the teachings of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the the sovereignty of God in our own lives, recognizing that there are times that 
The answer is not yet. The time is answers in ways that we do not understand or see yet, that that is within the realm of what is possible. And there are times when we pray wrongly and thank the Lord he does not say yes to those things. Paul talks about this, that the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf and prays for us in ways that we can't because we don't know how. And praise God for that because it, that means that our prayer life isn't dependent on us knowing exactly what we need to say or how to say it. But in all of that, with those qualifiers, there is still this intense call to pray with faith, believing that God can do what we ask of him when that is done in response to him and in pursuing after Jesus. The second thing he teaches them is that prayer is supposed to be a context for forgiveness. In verse 25, he says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. So, this again goes back to the image of the temple we, saw, we see in 1 Kings 8, where the temple was supposed to be a place where when they had sinned, they could pray for forgiveness and that the sacrifices were done. That is not changed. There is still a sense in which prayer is supposed to be a place where not only do we confess and ask for forgiveness from God, but evidently also it is supposed to be the place where we begin the process of reconciliation with others and forgiving others. Prayer is at the center point of this process of forgiving, both of us seeking forgiveness from God and seeking forgiveness from others. And for us forgiving others. How many times have we been in prayer and there's that thing that our heart is holding on to? That thing that we're just not willing to let go of that someone has done to us. Prayer is the place where we wrestle with that and where we let go and where we forgive because it's also the place where we recognize how much we have received in forgiveness. So we see here this transition that's taking place where the temple, no longer the center of prayer. Now it's going to be Jesus's disciples, those who follow him. And that actually resonates a lot with what we see in the new Testament in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul is going to talk about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter 2, it's going to talk about us being built together as a spiritual house, a place of spiritual sacrifices. There's this sense in which the temple is not this building anymore. It is supposed to be the people of God, both individually and corporately, and that that now is the place that is supposed to be a house of prayer. And a couple things that stood out to me about that reality, that calling that we have to be a, a people of prayer. The first is actually related to what we talked about last week. This idea that in his presence there is fullness of joy. And we talked last week a little bit about how do you come to draw near to his presence in the midst of grief. But I think here we have what is one of the primary ways that we have to draw near to God, which is prayer, talking with him, coming before him. It's not the only way, but this is one of the ways that when we want to draw near to God, 
we are supposed to do, do so through prayer. Just like the people used to come to the temple to draw near to God, so now do we have the Holy Spirit in us. So now are we the temple. So when we want to draw near to God, prayer should be one of the primary means that we go to. But I was also thinking about this with regards to our theme for the year, serving with joy in our play of call, place of calling and giftedness. One of the places that we see Jesus calling his disciples to serve is in prayer, in intercession, and even part of their, their witness, right? In the temple, this idea was is that when people would come, they would pray, they would see the power of God, and thereby come to know him as God. So too, I think, are we supposed to be praying for others and praying that they would see the power of God in their lives such that they would come to know him. And when we encounter things in our lives that are places where of brokenness, places where we just do not know what to do or how to help, prayer is the first place we should go. We have a calling as a people to be intercessors. Now, I wanted to give just a little guidance because some of you may be like, okay, this is great. How do I do it? Like, how, how should I pray? Now, I'm not going to try to develop a whole theology of prayer in the next five minutes, but I just want to give you a couple of, of kind of starting places. The first thing I would say is set aside a time to pray if you don't have one already. Now, certainly we are supposed to pray without ceasing. Paul talks about that, that as we encounter things, we should be praying about them and taking things to the Lord. But I think there is something to having a time in your day where you are just designating to pray to God and to hear from him. And if you need a place to start with regards to what to pray during that time, I, I love praying through scripture. I think it is one of the best ways to orient our hearts and our minds towards God is to take a piece of scripture and just pray through it. Read a section. See what it stirs up in you with regards to what to pray, as well as just asking God to tell you what to pray. And some really great places would be Matthew 6, 9 through 13, the Lord's Prayer. Start there if you want somewhere to pray. That's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And I use this sometimes in my own prayer life. My Father in heaven, holy is your name. Lord, you are my heavenly Father. You are a good Father to me. And you are holy God. And Lord, I recognize that you have called me to be holy as you are holy. And I see the places in my life, Lord, where I need to confess and repent to you. Like just using it that way of of the things that it, it brings up about who God is and who we are and what people around us are supposed to be seeing and experiencing about who God is, and it should stir those things in us. So the Lord's Prayer is a great place to start, and the Psalms are another great place. Just working through a psalm, letting it lead you as you pray through it. I would also say that we've talked a lot about individual prayer, but this is also a call to corporate prayer. And so throughout the year, you're going to hear calls to corporate prayer. Things like solemn assembly. We've been doing corporate prayer for Ken Fujiwara. Things like that. And I would encourage you, when you hear those things, consider participating. I recognize it can be a somewhat intimidating thing to join in to a corporate prayer if you've never done so before. 
but come in knowing that this isn't about how good you pray or, or anything like that. It is about us coming together before the Lord and looking to him to lead us in those things. So don't let that be a barrier to think that somehow you're going to be asked to perform something with regards to prayer. That's really not what corporate prayer is about. And so I really want to just encourage you, if you have not yet participated in some of the opportunities for corporate prayer, that, that you would consider that in the future. Jesus has made us a house of prayer. It's what we are. It's what he's calling us to, to be people who pray in faith and people who pray as a central part of drawing near to him. All right, let me close this in prayer now. Heavenly Father, Lord, you have made us into a temple of the Holy Spirit. This reality that you have chosen to dwell with us. Lord, I pray that you would call us into deeper times of prayer, more frequent times of prayer, that you would make us people that just default to interceding, that our response to everything we encounter would be to turn to you. Lord, teach us to do this well and help us, God, to pray in faith in those times when we know that we are praying in accordance with your will in accordance with your word, that we would pray in faith knowing that you are a good, gracious, and powerful God. All these things I pray in your precious and holy name. Amen.